I am Citizen 44. This show is being sponsored by Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. We're all living in a simulation. Some alien race out there using our misery for entertainment. How's the comic book going? It's languishing unfinished. You don't have time because you're working your ass off at Kyle's terrible restaurant. 359, Bob, cutting it close. You should be grateful that you have a job. Grateful. Maybe I'll join you. <laughs> I feel like I'm 14 again. Drawing comics and needing a ride home. Close your eyes for a minute. I want you to visualize what you'll be doing 10 years from now. Are you serious? I think you've lost your mind. No, you're not visualizing it, Bobby. Come on, close your eyes. Don't close my eyes anymore. I feel like an idiot. You could roll. I remember. It's completely useless talent. Rising Phoenix. Come for the pizzas. Oh, my God. Stay for the bowling. Your aliens made you do that strike. It's my destiny, Bobby. I know it is. Imagine being an owner, drawing your comics whenever you want. Oh, man. Serious? That's what I'm talking about. Bobby? My partner, Carlos, makes this delicious dough with his hands. Yes. I got 300 scores before, but nobody ever put my pictures in the papers. You should enter our grand opening tournament. You haven't even seen me roll, Huffy. You haven't seen the action on my ball. Mario put his money in too. He has a right to ask questions. I'm his proxy. I've been helping you. For months. He's been helping Mario. You are a paranoid little child. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say, Theo. Leaving a lot of money on the table. Nice going. You're going down. Not your fault. Well. It's not my fault, then it's Tanya's. If it's not Tanya's fault, then it's the aliens. You need to take care of yourself, Bobby. I am fine. I am a grown woman. These could be the best years of your life. Do you realize that? Visualize. This is what I live for, Hoffy. Frame 10. These two geniuses are opening up a pizza parlor slash bowling alley. It's classy. Phoenix, Oregon. Mark Ehrensberg, that guy, he could fuck up a cup of coffee. You know what today is? Cinco de Mayo. Si, es Cinco de Mayo. Donde esta la casa de Pepe? Benvenidos a la Citizen 44. Cuatro, cuatro. With Mark Ehrensberg. What are you doing today? You're painting your deck? Yes, I am. It is Sunday. It's beautiful outside. It's actually good deck painting weather. What an exciting topic for today's show. You know who's on the show today? A friend of yours. Friend of mine? Sophia Blanton. Sophia Loren? No. Is she alive? I don't know. She's exotic like Sophia Loren. Right. Sophia Blanton. But you don't know her by that name. Paola, but she's wonderful. Yeah, she's a really great lady. I think the folks are going to really enjoy this show. You know, she's from the former Yugoslavia called... Macedonia? Macedonia. Yeah, that's where she's from. Macedonia to Chicago to Brazil to Ashland. Yeah. Very lovely. Yeah. Are you going out of town next week? You going to go see your mom? Yeah. You don't think I ain't got no good grammar? Yeah, it's pretty good if you're in the movie Deliverance. Did I mention I watched Deliverance yesterday with my son Sam? He really liked it. Well, it's a classic. It's a classic. Sometimes you have to lose yourself before you can find anything. You've got a pretty mouth. This is show number 67. Wow. 
You know who's going to be on the next show? Uh, no. Local DJ at 102.7 The Drive here in the Rogue Valley, Danny Canada. Great. He's a super cool guy, and he's from Canada. Also, Reese... Witherspoon. No. Reese Myers. He is an amateur race yeah, car driver. He's a great actor, Jonathan Reese Myers. Who? He's a great actor from Ireland. Yeah, he's not on the show. Oh. It's Reese Myers. Oh. He is an amateur race car driver working with local professional race car driver, Derek DeBoer. Derek DeBoer. His mother was Zsa right? No, no, no. Uh, no, no. Gabor. Yeah. Green Sorry. Acres. Right. Green Acres is the place to be. Yeah. Farm living is the life That's for Eddie, me. Eddie Albert. Yeah. Who was in The Longest Yard. Yeah. Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. May 17th here in Ashland. Very exciting. Yeah. Show number 67, Sophia Paola Blanton right now. Hey, Sophia Blanton. Hey, Mark Ehrensberg. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Good. I know you peripherally through Rich Reese, the producer of the show. Yeah, Did you know right. he was the producer of the show? No, I didn't know he was the producer of the show. Yeah, he finds me very interesting guests that I would never have access to, that's especially great. his contacts in the music business. Oh, right, right. That's something that Rich and I have in common going back a long, long way because I used to work for Polygram Records. Remember when record labels were a thing? Yeah. Yeah, it was a thing back in the 90s. That was the twilight of that era, and I sort of caught the tail end of it for the internet came along and revolutionized the industry, so. <laughs> so you were in LA? No, I wasn't. I was at the Chicago branch. Who did you work with over there? Well, Polygram was a distribution company for several labels like Motown, Mercury, Island, Polygram Classics and Jazz, London Decca, and a few other record labels. I started out in the Mercury Records urban and rap division. What did you do for Polygram? I was in marketing, and so I was one of those people that would work with the radio stations and try to up the rotations of our singles. And I also helped mastermind different kinds of promotions for artists that were coming in on a tour in town. So I would think about different promotions. We'd have in stores. Remember when record stores were a thing? Tower Records, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was in marketing, so we would dream up different ways to do meaningful promotions with our artists. When was this, in the 90s? Yeah, this was in the early 90s. And are you from Chicago? I was brought up in Chicago, yeah. My family migrated to Chicago from former Yugoslavia. Are you a first-generation American? No, I was born over there. I was brought to the States as a little six-year-old. What year was that? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> what do you recall about Yugoslavia growing up? I was brought up by my grandparents while my parents came to the States to get jobs and get their citizenship started and their green card. And by the time they came to get me, they had acquired a three-story brownstone in Wrigleyville over there in a really cool neighborhood of Chicago. Is that near but, Wrigley Field? Yep, yep. I remember the village very, very well in Macedonia. And I was lucky enough to have a granddad who was a great folkloric dancer. So he was my first dance teacher. And we did a lot of dancing, and he taught me a lot about the history of our region there as pertains to the dance and the music and the rhythms that converge in Macedonia. Macedonia is the former Yugoslav Republic that we're from, and it's a real crossroads because it is the path into Europe from Asia Minor. So 
That was the welcome mat of the Ottoman armies when they came invading Europe and they brought their music and their ways. Did you hear about the Ottoman Empire? No. You know, that whole thing was just about putting your feet up. <laughs> I didn't make that up. That's a Seinfeld thing. Oh my God. How long did they leave you with your grandparents? I was an infant when they left, so I didn't really remember them. And then they came back when I was six and got me. And lo and behold, I was going to be going to the quote unquote new world. And I really didn't want to go. I wanted to stay in the village with grandma and grandpa and the sheep and the goats and the chickens and my friends. And why did they want to leave? You know, Mark, at that time, there was a lot of brain drain going on in Eastern Bloc nations. Yugoslavia was one of those countries that kind of sat on the divide between the East and the West, between the American westernized world and the Soviet bloc. And it was in this kind of limbo where a lot of young people were just quite simply leaving because there weren't the types of opportunities that they were looking for. My parents were both bright people and they wanted to become professionals and they took the perilous journey. They were dreamers. It must have been very difficult for your mom to leave you behind. She was all new to me when I first met her, that's for sure. I had no idea who this lady was. Growing up in Chicago, I was immediately plunged into this foreign world and I was put into kindergarten without speaking a lick of English. I had TV, so Bewitched and Star Trek and Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Jeannie and Sesame Street and all those programs. Remember that movie, The Fifth Element, where she comes out of the sort of teleportation device or whatever, and then she's sitting in front of the TV, just kind of downloading all of these eons of culture and knowledge while eating a rotisserie chicken? You know what I really wanted to be? I really wanted to be Hispanic. I really identified with the Hispanic kids in the class because I felt more kinship with their language than with English. So I guess what I felt was because Spanish is very staccato and so's Macedonian. So maybe it was that rhythm that I liked. I thought you were of some Latin descent. Your husband is Brazilian. Yeah, I met him in Brazil. I just repatriated to the States in late 2017 after teaching internationally for 22 years. Dance was one of the things that I was teaching, but I also teach a swath of academic topics in the American schools. I was a high school English teacher and a philosophy teacher and a theater coach. Wow. What did your parents do back when they were in Yugoslavia? What was your father's trade? At that time, he was in the military and my mother was a stage actress. She was in theater and she opened the first radio station in our little village there. What's the name of the village? Berovo. Berovo. Yes. What does that mean? I don't know. Okay. It is a word that may mean something, right? Yes. Okay. I was born in the neighboring town, Strumica, because they had the equipment in the hospital to bring me forth. Strumica. Yeah. What's that mean? I think it is a word that is connected to the name of the river that runs through it. Strimon, an old, old Greek word. It's right on the Greek border there. So your dad was in the military. Yeah. And what was his position in the military, do you know? I don't know. Probably something like troublemaker or crook. I don't know. <laughs> At that time, every young man was obligated to join the military. Yugoslavia sat in this unique sort of gray area. That was the Tito era, and he played both sides. So it was neither wholly Eastern Soviet bloc, 
nor wholly aligned with the West. So it was easier to get out of Yugoslavia. I believe what they did was they plotted their immigration process through the church. They were both members of a church and then members of that church helped them to make their way to Chicago, which has a great big Eastern European community, which is always really helpful when you're an immigrant. So you're in Chicago now, mm -hmm. you're six, you're looking for work. <laughs> you're kind of meeting your family for the first time. Kind of what was that like for you? It's really weird because there was a new little sister to contend with as well. I remember that time as my mind being blown open with this new culture that I was in, new language, new things. I mean, crazy things like peanut butter. I had never seen peanut butter before. Being able to walk down the street to a corner store and all of these cars passing by. I lived in a village where goat carts would pass by and the occasional car would go through the town square. And in my youth in Macedonia, when I was really, really little, I remember the camel caravans. What was the population of your village? Oh, really tiny. Like eight? <laughs> yeah. No, it was a really, really tiny little mountain village. It actually looks a lot like Ashland. The topography is really, really similar, and it's a Mediterranean climate, so it's just perfect for farming. My husband tells me that the area around Ashland reminds him a lot of Tuscany. They say that if you teach a kid a second or third language before the age of seven, that that child is then hardwired for language. I already had a second language, which was German, and I think that made it easier to just soak up English by the time I was in second grade, I was already a really, really avid reader, so I was quite a little bookworm in elementary school. I mean, I'm still quite a bookworm. And it was the 70s, and so leisure suits, bad hairdos, and reading, and yeah. What were your parents doing in Chicago? My mom eventually became a surgical nurse, and then my father was working with engineering. That's kind of where their careers went. Did they go back to school? Yep. I do remember my mother's piles and piles of medical books on microbiology and anatomy, and I would read through them. I was really, really fascinated with that. Eventually, we moved to the suburbs, and what was good about that was I had plenty of access to the outdoors. Nothing made me happier than to just grab my dog and a backpack full of snacks and books and just disappear into the woods. That's what made me happy. Are your parents still around? Yeah, they're still around. My mom lives in Chicago and my dad lives in Atlanta. When they announced that they were getting divorced, a sense of relief washed over the entire planet. How long have you been married? I've been married to Thomas for almost a year now. We've been together for six years, but we got married last year. Did you get married here? We did, we did. We got married right across the mountain there at a beautiful place called the Circle of Trust. It used to be known as the Circle of Terrence. It's a gorgeous retreat mansion, really beautiful place. We had a really intimate ceremony there, and we met Rich in 2016 when we took a trip up here from Brazil to see if we would like it, because we were already starting to plan our move out of Brazil. So a friend of ours said, why don't you come check out Southern Oregon? Maybe you guys will like it here. So we did, and that's when we met Rich, and then we uh, kind of lost contact with him. And then lo and behold, one day he walked into the circle of trust with another mutual friend, and we looked at each other and said, hey, where have you been? Middle school. What was that like for you? A bit of a nightmare, really, yeah. It's those tween years. You're so awkward and everything's weird. I kept my nose in my books, but I also discovered rock and roll and other things. It made me a little bit wilder. Somebody passes you a joint. 
And I'm listening to Frank Zappa. And isn't this weird? I just did a Facebook posting the other day about how the song Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix always reminds me of middle school lunch. There was a jukebox and at lunchtime, one of us would have to race to the jukebox. The first song we always played was Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. So I made a posting on Facebook about how that song conjures up the smell of tater tots for me. Headbanging to horrible songs from Def Leppard and freaking out when we discovered MTV. I was a bit of a tomboy, so I just kind of wanted to run around outside. How'd you do academically? Quite well. I was always a good student. At that time, I wasn't really getting along with my parents. It was challenging in that respect, but academically, I always did quite well. That's why you're teaching now. Yeah, it's a blessed profession. Whether I'm teaching children, teens, or adults, as an educator, I really believe in multiple modalities for multiple learning styles that hopefully resonate. Did you read Huxley's Island? No. Every educator must read that book. On the list. Rock and roll is a big part of my life. I was quite a headbanger, so I really, really, really was into the hard rock like Black Sabbath, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, and dropping acid and listening to The Doors all weekend. One of the reasons that I gravitated towards psychedelics so early on in life is reaction to having really strict old world parents who were bound and determined to bring me up in the old world way in the new world. And it just wasn't working. So I discovered that. And then I also discovered books by Carlos Castaneda and away we go. I moved out right after graduating high school. Like that day? <laughs> <laughs> Got this crazy idea that I should join the military. And that was really short-lived. That didn't work out. You so did join the military? I did join the military. I joined the U.S. Navy. I thought that whatever the military was going to put me through was probably better than what my parents had put me through. So I was willing to try it. How long you did know? it take for you to find out that that was not the case? I found out on my ship date when I was plucked out of the line for being too skinny. They told me to go back home and fatten up. I wasn't going to go home, so I ended up finding some shitty jobs, moving in with a friend, and started going to the local community college. And then I ended up really liking the local community college. So when my time came to ship back out, I decided not to do it. But I decided I was just going to work my way through college, and that's how I was going to do it. So I ended up getting out of it, but I won't be able to run for president. At this point, I was in Elgin, Illinois, about 45 minutes west of Chicago. During that time, I got very, very involved in the rock and roll and punk rock nightlife of Chicago. And then I started meeting people from the music industry. And then I ended up getting an internship at Polygram Records and then eventually a job at Polygram Records. So that period of my life was driven by rock. <laughs> no regrets. I had a really, really great time. Did you go into a university from junior college? Yeah, I did. I went to Roosevelt University in Chicago. What was your major? Broadcast communications. Was this prior to your experience with Polygram? This was in tandem with. That's how I ended up being able to get the internship at Polygram. It was a period of really great synergy, really good times. 
back then. I was listening to Soundgarden a lot. I was listening to Ministry. There was a band called The Prodigy that I really liked. House of Pain came out. I really liked that era when hip hop and heavy metal started bumping heads and industrial rock, that was really a lot of fun. Chicago had quite an underground scene. Really great venues and great bands. Metro Smart Bar of Chicago, the Vic Theater, the Avalon Ballroom, mosh pits would break out, people would throw bottles. Good times! My friends and I were this band of leather-jacketed, jack-booted college kids. You're working for Polygram, how long did you work for them? I worked for them for a couple of years. It's odd how the twists of fate happen. I ended up meeting my first husband. He was a high school teacher, and he really wanted to teach overseas. And he convinced me that I could be a great teacher and convinced me to give it a try. Let's just go to a job fair. Let's see what happens. So I, I kind of shuffled over to my boss at Polygram, and to my surprise, he said, go. If it doesn't work out, come back. We'll give you your job back. What do I got to lose? So that was the first time I went to Brazil. We were only going to stay two years. That's the length of a contract. But we ended up renewing our contract four times. I became fluent in Portuguese very quickly and really active in the Sao Paulo community. The kids that we teach at the international school are really the elite kids. So I took on a lot of projects that would bridge those kids with their less fortunate buddies down the hill. So I ended up getting really, really involved in the community. It was a great time. Brazil's not easy, but there's a lot of beauty there and there's a lot of authenticity there. And um, we were only supposed to stay away for two years. We ended up staying in Brazil for eight years and then got headhunted to the International School of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. That was another big paradigm shift. Stayed in Malaysia for six years. That was its own adventure because it's right there in the middle of Southeast Asia and it's a great hub. The tides of life shifted once again and my ex-husband and I parted amicably. I decided to go back to Brazil and he decided to stay on in Malaysia for a few more years. And then he came back to Brazil, but we had already split up. Curiously enough, we're still family. We still get along really well. I spent three years all by myself living in the jungle in Brazil. I have a beautiful retreat home in the coastal rainforest of Sao Paulo State between Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. There's a great surfing beach out front and rainforest out back. Sleeps about 15 people. It's got a really great open plan kitchen and a really huge room where people would gather I spent about three years there all by myself, writing, producing my classes, and hosting retreats. I would have dance-oriented retreats. We had five rhythms, we had goddess culture, we had yoga and mindfulness retreats. The years that I was teaching high school, I always had after-school dance classes for kids. The plays that I co-directed always had choreography and movement in them. And then I was always involved with organizing arts festivals. The dance has always been a big part of my life. While I was in Malaysia, I became a professional belly dancer, performing Middle Eastern dance. I started in Chicago around 1993, and it just kind of stuck with me. I studied it all the time I was living in Brazil, and then 
by the time I got to Malaysia, I became a professional and I had a little dance studio and had students come learn from me and had a troupe and it was a really wild time. I was really new to Malaysia. It's a very conservative country. One of the interesting things that ended up happening to me in Malaysia was because of this belly dance thing, when I decided to open the studio, I'd put out a press release and the media was really interested in it. And lo and behold, a lady got a hold of me through one of my agents. It turned out to be the first lady of Malaysia and she wanted to know if I would come to the palace to teach her daughter privately. And of course I said yes. So I was the first daughter's private tutor for a few years there. And during that time, the first lady started inviting me to come perform. We're having a special dignitary brunch for the queen. It's gonna be all ladies of the royal family and wives of ambassadors and so on. So I would come and perform and I would do a show for them and get them up to dance with me. And then it's the Sultan of Selangor's birthday in two weeks. Would you like to perform? Oh, great. The Sultan of Brunei would like to know if you'd go dance for her daughter's wedding. Okay, here we go. It was really wild. Like I said, the tides of life will put you in some pretty interesting spots. I left Malaysia in 2009, back to Brazil. My teaching was mainly centered around dance and movement. So I was teaching adults, but I was also working with two NGOs who made it possible for us to bring modalities, world dance and physical theater, to some of the really at-risk areas, working with smaller kids. It was very gratifying because, as you know, there's a huge socioeconomic disparity in Brazil. And some of the kids from the lower socioeconomic levels, not only do they not have a whole lot of choices, their basic education is just lamentable. A lot of them come from really violent neighborhoods and violent home situations and extreme poverty. And so the things that they needed to express seemed to be easier for them to express through movement and dance and physical theater and acting it out. So I discovered a whole new application for movement, which I knew existed, but this was my field work. It was a very dangerous time because I was in areas that are violent. So I was a victim of violent crime a few times, but I'm here. It was also a very, very gratifying time. And when they see you and they come running up to the car, then you get out of the car and give everybody a hug and a kiss. It's like they're your own kids. I think the best thing I can do as an educator is make myself obsolete because the person that I'm working with has firm ground under their own feet, knowing that I've been a part of their development. That's priceless. You're back in Brazil. Yeah. How did you meet your now husband? That was another weird twist and turn of fate because a series of disastrous flash floods tore through our region in early 2013. Then I discovered just how difficult it was to be on the ground in Brazil and not as an expat, so I didn't have that safety net of an expat. I mean, it was absolute chaos because the government did absolutely nothing to help us. There were people that were trapped in their houses for days and days and days. No emergency help ever came. My house was savaged by the flooding. My car ended up in the river. And long story short, what ended up happening was I helped to form a citizens group where we pooled our own resources together to help each other out. We figured out ways to get people out of trapped areas. One thing that we did was we got long borders to grow across swollen waters and pluck them out child by child and then paddle back on the long boards. Some of the older folks would sit on the longboard and pull themselves back. We developed an emergency information system 
like if waters were rising on one part of the river, then we would immediately get a calling tree together, tell people downriver to prepare and get ready. And it was, it was a really, really chaotic time. I was kind of PTSD about it. I had formed this online group on Facebook to let everyone know about the conditions because there were also landslides and road closures. And oddly enough, people were able to get online. That was before Brazil pulled the plug on the internet in late 2013. That was fun. The stated objective for it was that they were worried that the structure that the internet was on, the mainframe, was a U.S. mainframe for the Brazilian internet. And the then president, Dilma Rousseff, was convinced that Obama was quote-unquote spying on Brazil and basically ghettoized the Brazilian internet onto its woefully inadequate national infrastructure. That's kind of like the story of Brazil. Really, really endemic structural problems. From one day to the next, Mark, Internet was both non-existent and triple the price, a blatant step backwards. So I had this online emergency reporting group that I was writing on all the time. Flood number two came a month after flood number one, and I just managed to clean up everything, and flood number two came. It was absolute chaos, and one of the people that started chatting to me one night as I was reporting on the river levels was my now husband because his children were vacationing in the next beach town over and he heard that you can't get through and that there were road closures and landslides and so on. So he got in touch with me that way and then we started chatting and he was flipping out. He said, what do I do? I've got ropes, I've got pontoons, let me know, what should I do? Unless you can row your boat all the way down here, there's no way to get down here. We ended up finally physically meeting after some Facebook chats over the course of the next month or so, and the rest is history. He's a very nice man. He me. really is. You are in a totally different field now. I am. I'm in the industrial hemp business now. Here again, the tides of life. I came to Ashland, and then I immediately got a job substitute teaching because my having taught internationally for 22 years wasn't enough to be hired as a regular teacher. I would have had to have gone back to school for God knows how long. Anyhow, I was substitute teaching and quite enjoying it because it was fun and no grading stacks of crappy essays on the weekends. That was a stopgap measure. It really wasn't what my soul needed to be doing. And then I responded to an invitation by a good friend of ours, Asha Deliverance, truly one of the tribal mothers of Ashland. She invited us to a Vortex meeting last October. She invited people that she felt could get something out of knowing each other. And at that meeting, she had also invited Bruce Perluin, who's the CEO of Hemp Inc. I remember meeting him and thinking, oh my God, what a character, because he's quite a storied person himself with all of his experience being a big time marijuana smuggler in the 70s and then doing time for it and then coming out and starting Medical Marijuana Inc. and being the initiator of the pot stocks and then having the forethought to see that marijuana was going to be trending down while hemp would be trending upwards. He had mentioned at that meeting that he needed a personal assistant and I was like, I'm nobody's personal assistant. One of the ways I consult my intuition is I see how I'm feeling first thing in the morning. Whatever is that first impression or download that I have in the morning tends to be what's going to direct my day. I woke up the next morning, sat straight up, and a little voice said, call Bruce. So I called Asha, I said, you know, Asha, you know that funny little man? <laughs> 
I said, do you think I should try to go work for him? And she said, oh yes, by all means, here, let me give you his phone number. And so I called him up and oddly enough, he answered and I would find out over time that he's definitely not somebody who answers his phone because it's ringing off the hook 24 hours a day. So he said, yeah, 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 I'm only in town for a couple of days, so just come right down, send your resume, we want to interview you this afternoon. And his business partner was in town, so I went down there and they hired me on the spot. I felt like Alice going down the rabbit hole, the rabbit hole of industrial hemp. Within a few weeks, I accompanied him to Las Vegas to the MJ BizCon. The first few months, Mark, I was witnessing this huge shift that's taking place, witnessing the impact that it is having here and really wrapping my head around the kind of impact that is yet to come because industrial hemp is going to transform this valley. Did you know that Facebook would not allow me to advertise Hemp University, which is our educational initiative, because of the word hemp? They will not allow paid advertising or anything having to do with weed. It's federally legal now, the Farm Bill passed. Hemp is now federally legal, but what's happening is, is that the state and interstate laws now are in that process of trickling down this particular climate and this soil is so well suited to growing high quality CBD destined hemp. And that's what we're really excited about. We're excited about the opportunities for vertical integration for operations that farm process and extract. And with our infrastructure projects, they come to an area like this and invest in the processing infrastructure. So. We already have a processing center that's up and operational in Medford. It harvests and dries, cures, bucks, trims, stores, does all of that, and we're adding to it now to go all the way through to the extraction phase of it. That's the infrastructure side of the Hemp Inc. business model, and then there's the education side of the Hemp Inc. business model, which is the Hemp University. They actually had the first one in North Carolina in 2017, and it was this year-long program that brought a group of between two to 300 tobacco farmers, brought them through the transition process into industrial hemp. It's funny because it seems like the science is trailing behind the industry right now. Having said that, there are people out there with really great research. A friend of ours, Paul von Hartmann, he wrote this great book on cannabis and climate change. Cannabis and hemp, they're related plants. The only difference is the level of THC. One of the great things about this book is that he really shows how Gaia therapeutic hemp and cannabis culture can be because it sequesters more CO2 from the oxygen than any other known plant. Its uses are so manifold. It can be recycled and put back into the ground. And it provides us with so many great organic and biodegradable alternatives for toxic substances. What we found based on what happened last year was that a lot of farmers scaled up to hemp and then didn't know what to do with their crop. At the end, they had no place to dry it. They had no way of processing it. They had no idea how they were gonna be selling it. So we're going to be having speakers that are going to be helping people think about what is the end game for my crop. So we'll have people talking about e-commerce. We'll have people talking about hemp futures 
building those channels where you can pre-sell your crop. We'll have people talking about extraction contracts. CBD isolate is the king of the hill right now. There are uses for every part of the plant, even the root stock and the central stalks. I was mapping the Rogue Valley last fall, driving around looking at all the hemp farms. They all had piles of roots out back, eventually gonna set fire to them. Even that is useful. There are people that are grinding up that leftover material. They're using it for fiber. They're using it for pulp. There's even people that are using that ground up stock in coffee blends. They're putting it in coffee. Every part of that plant can generate some type of profit. One of the things that we're really trying to tackle with Hemp University is that we have to start taking steps to build a better community and to shore up the idea of cooperative farming and looking at each other as assets and not as competitors. Because as Paul Murdoch, who's gonna be speaking on cooperative farming, said, your competitor is not the farmer down the street from you. Your competitor is R.J. Reynolds. Your competitor is Monsanto. Your competitor is Big Pharma. And they're coming for us. Hemp University is going to be an initiative that is going to take positive steps towards contributing to a better community being built around hemp. This is just the beginning. I think we're going to see a real wave come through here. And my prayer is that we handle it in the right way and that we harness its power to bring forth a new era of stability and prosperity for all. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was great to talk to Sophia about all the amazing things she's done through her life. Quite a robust experience. If you want to check out what she's got going on over there at Hemp Inc., the Hemp University, go to thehempuniversity.com. Find out when they have upcoming events, who their speakers will be, how to contact them, all those kinds of things. It's also good to catch up with Rich Reese. Good to see old Richie before he heads off next week to Arizona to see his mom. Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. It's coming to Ashland, Oregon on May 17th. That's on a Friday at the Varsity Theater downtown Ashland. And then May 13th through 16th, there's going to be four special theater showings, four consecutive nights made possible by Oregon Films. That's May 13th through 16th. That's Monday through Thursday. Phoenix, Oregon co-star Jesse Borrego will be there at all four screenings. So uh, come on out to Portland and check out Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. I want to thank you for listening to the show as always. A lot of fun. Couldn't do it without you. I want to say thank you again to uh, Rich Reese for uh, producing the show and getting me all these great guests and being such a fun guy. You're a fun guy. No, seriously, you're a fun guy. Much appreciate all that. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. To hear all the shows all the time and download them if you wish, go to CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. 
And you can also always, always, always go to Aaronsburg.com. That's A-R-I-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. Please go to CastBox and become a subscribe listener. The more subscribers I have, the more I know that you like what I'm doing. If you would like to support Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsburg, just go to the podcast page at Aaronsburg.com and click on the donate button. Next week, we have Danny Canada from 1027 The Drive, our morning DJ, and Mr. Reese Myers, race car driver. Look forward to sharing that with you. Have a good rest of your week, and Feliz Cinco de Mayo. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. I think this is where everything finishes up. We just may be at the end of the line. Now I gotta turn my back on you.